We're very familiar with this from our longtime baseball team here in Seattle, the Mariners, where it feels like every year is a rebuilding year. This felt to me like the rebuilding year of the tech and business world. Well, after that, I hope we're not perpetually stuck in a Mariner's land. <laughs> oh, come on. Believe, John. Believe. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in tech, science, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we get to talk about some of the biggest stories in the news. This week, it is our year-end recap. We look at the top stories of the past year and assess the overall themes from the past year. We are pleased to welcome back Ed Lazowska. University of Washington Allen School computer science professor and veteran of that program. Ed, it is great to have you back for this, what we can now call an annual tradition. So great to be here as part of the holiday transition, guys. <laughs> so Ed obviously has a great perspective on things that are happening, not only in academia and computer science, but in the tech industry. And let me give you first, just as a jumping off point, my overall take on this past year. It sucked. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it felt like every month there was a new reality, a new adjustment. You saw it, especially in some Amazon headlines where they couldn't figure out what in the heck their return to work policy was going to be. And it just felt like it was a year of setting the stage for something else. And that something else never really happened this year. Well, I, you know, I'm an inveterate optimist. So yeah, COVID has thrown us all kinds of loops, right? But you think about Amazon, for example, I just think it's been a remarkable year for them. There's the leadership transition. There is the uh, new set of leadership principles, which I think are really important in terms of employee treatment. There is the way they scaled up in response to COVID. I think it's just absolutely unbelievable how they have scaled up. And there's the continued success of Amazon Web Services. So I think Boy, they responded in an amazing way. Uh, Microsoft continues to boom. Uh, you know, Azure is doing uh, extraordinarily well. I'll say something that will undoubtedly prove to be false, but I think that I see the light at the end of the tunnel for biotech growth in Seattle. There are a significant number of bio, biomed, biotech companies. You're familiar with Sujil Patel's work, for example, which is not Seattle, but Sujil's a Seattle person. I think the interface between information technology and biotechnology is going to give us a real competitive advantage because we're very strong in biomedicine and we're very strong in computing. And there's so much at that interface. There were some downsides, of course. You know, Zillow was a, a downside, having to back out of the home purchase and resell, home flip business, essentially. That's, you know, that's a wonderfully well run company. And Rich Barton is one of our preeminent serial successful entrepreneurs in this town. And to me, as someone who spends time in data science, it's pretty interesting that an inability to predict prices a few months out in a volatile market seems to have been what uh, what tanked that. So that's very interesting. But I, I think uh, considering all the adversity, this has been a pretty good year. Yeah, I, it's great to talk to you and get the optimistic view. <laughs> uh, I, I think I need uh, uplifted at this point and my uh, at, at this point in 2021. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I think you hit on a lot of our top stories, a lot of topics that I want to dive into. Maybe we should start with Amazon since you started there, Ed. I think they are an amazing story. I've talked a lot about it here on the podcast. Like they just boggle the mind that they are successful in what they do in so many different businesses. My contention has always been that they've grown so big, so fast, that their systems are breaking down and that they are their biggest risk is that they'll just implode. And I think they're at risk of that going into 2022 in a new way with the Bezo, Jeff Bezos transition away from CEO and Andy Jassy coming in to run the place. I think it's a tenuous time for them because... And maybe Andy Jassy will just keep the machine rolling as, as, as Bezos did. But I think there's a risk that the systems break down and he can't control it uh, the way that Bezos did. And so 
I, I agree with all the things you said. It was it's been an amazing uh, feat in what in what they've accomplished. But looking ahead, I'm not as bullish on them because I've never seen any company grow like that without massive massive problems, and I think they will probably hit. Just to give a specific example of an area that I've been watching closely, you look at the HR systems related to Amazon's fulfillment network and its warehouses. I've talked personally with folks who want to work for Amazon and essentially can't because some algorithm somewhere has decided that they took a vacation that wasn't quite right or they went on a leave. And I think the real issue is that Amazon is going to potentially run out of workers in some markets. Now that sounds ludicrous, I know, but when you look at the labor shortage and some of these smaller communities, especially that Amazon's going into, there are people there who want to work for Amazon and simply can't, even though they'd be great employees and Amazon systems don't seem to be able to recognize that fact. And I think this speaks to the scale that you're talking about. And it feels like, Amazon has gotten out over its skis. There was this quip many years ago that in the fullness of time, at the rate telephone usage was growing, uh, every adult in America was going to be a telephone operator. And of course, they turned us into <laughs> telephone operators, put dials on the phones and then buttons and stuff like that. But uh, you know, you can imagine that asymptotically, every adult in America is going to be working in an Amazon fulfillment center unless they manage to crank up the robotics a little bit. You know, Walmart is, of course, bigger than Amazon. And Amazon, I dare say, has uh, a better collection, uh, or at least as good a collection of software people. So, uh, you know, and I think Amazon has been in extraordinary growth periods for years. It's a little like the internet. The internet was doubling annually for a decade and a half before most people even knew it existed. That was in 1993 when web browsers, graphical web browsers came along, right? But the internet goes back to the late 60s, early 70s, okay? And, and it was doubling every year. Uh, granted, the numbers were small, but, you know, this is the thing about exponential growth. Suddenly, blammo, there it is. But, you know, I think uh, Amazon's been coping with this kind of growth for years. So that, it's not to say that it isn't an enormous challenge, but this is a, a team that you've got to have confidence in. Speaking to the worker issue and just um, the labor shortage, this does tie into another top story on GeekWire this year, which we covered very closely, which was the union vote in Bessemer, Alabama at the Fulfillment Center. I'm just bringing up as a topic of discussion because I'm curious going into next year if that's going to be an issue or do you think it was kind of a one and done with Amazon workers trying to unionize? Well, Amazon and Starbucks as well. What do you think of the prospects of that actually taking root in the next year? One quick thing to note on that is that the National Labor Relations Board has ordered a new election in Bessemer. So we're going to see that resurface specifically. But I think your question, John, is more to the, the bigger picture issue of whether the union effort will take hold. Right. And it ties into the two leadership principles as well that we mentioned. They revised their leadership principles. And Todd, you'll have to school me on the two. I think one is strive to be Earth's best employer. Yep. Uh, and the second new one was in that vein as well. It's with great scale and power comes responsibility. I'm kind of butchering it, but I think that was essentially it. That's right. I guess this is part of the challenge for Andy Jassy is, is implementing those in a meaningful way. And are they leadership principles truly? I mean, they take the, the Amazon takes those leadership principles very, very seriously. So I don't think they'd put them in there unless they really wanted to try to fulfill them. So we'll see. Ed, you sound optimistic overall about this company and its ability to continue scaling and making an impact. Well, I think, uh, you know, I have enormous admiration for Andy Jassy. He really conceived and scaled enormously AWS, and he's a good human being. Okay. And I think that speaks to the leadership principles. The first time Andy spoke in the entrepreneurship course that Greg Gottesman and I teach a number of years ago, he brought his wife and his daughter with him because his uh, teenage daughter had never heard him speak. It was just the sweetest thing in the world. He's just, he's just a good person. And uh, in addition to being a highly capable leader. So, uh, you know, 
I have to be optimistic. And honestly, I feel the same way about Microsoft. Microsoft is not just an incredibly capable company, but they are the conscience of the tech industry. Between Satya Nadella and Brad Smith, I think Microsoft is, uh, you know, the tech industry has a very bad rap among people in DC and elsewhere. And a fair amount of that is earned. Okay. And to the extent that we manage to weather this, Microsoft is going to be leading the way because of the behavior of the company under Brad and Sacha. So I just think these are wonderful Seattle companies that you got to have confidence in. I certainly do. What about Meta? Should we have confidence in them? They have, what, over 7,000 employees in the Seattle area? I have, of course, not been a fan of Facebook's behavior. Shortly after Meta was uh, announced the Borowitz Report, which I recommend to everyone. Borowitz is a... Uh, a guy who writes a short comedy column, and he's been acquired by The New Yorker now, so it shows up in The New Yorker. He had an article that was titled, Mark Zuckerberg Changes His Name to Mother Teresa. <laughs> so, um, no, and, and every place, it, it quoted Zuckerberg in this fake news article, it, it was Mother Teresa said. On one hand, yeah, we are headed towards the metaverse, but on the other hand, uh, these television ads in which recent Facebook employees talk to us about how complicated it is that don't carry a lot of weight with me. I think you have to follow the money. And uh, I think, uh, you know, a lot of damage has been done in recent years. Yeah. I'm, as we've talked about on the show here, I am, I do believe the metaverse is coming or it's here in various degrees. I don't think Facebook is the organization that is going to lead us there. I just don't think they've got the credibility to do it. And they, and as we know, they've lost a lot of their younger audience, which will probably drive this transition. Yeah, yeah. And so I just don't think they're, from a business standpoint, uh, well positioned for it. Right. I do want to push back a little bit on this because I think this is one example where technology prowess has the potential to overcome policy and social incompetence. And I say this because if you look at what Oculus has done in terms of its ability to come out with untethered VR headsets as the first step toward this bigger vision of the metaverse in the Oculus Quest 2 at a reasonable price point, starting at around $300. And I will acknowledge there's going to be one under our tree this holiday for my daughter, I won't let her listen to this before in advance. A family she is a thing. huge listener of the GeekWire podcast. I she, is, she is. She, she comments yeah. on it every Monday morning and gives me uh, her take on what's actually going on. Uh, but I'm just saying that the basic underpinnings are there in a way that other companies haven't brought out. So I, I guess don't count them out in terms of their ability to follow through. I agree. Lots of questions about their ability to be policy leaders, ethical leaders, uh, and I think the Mother Teresa <laughs> reference is hilarious. I love the the spoofs in the Borowitz reports as well, Ed. It's the, it's the best. Ed, how much um, have you seen the over the years the tech industry in the position it is, where it seems you know DC, both Democrats and Republicans are battling against it, and it does seem that there's at least a percentage of the population that has turned on the tech industry and is not proud. I mean, when, when I started covering the tech industry 20 plus years ago, there was this pride that this was our innovation economy and it was, and it was our savior. And it was this great shining American business success story. And it really seems that that has just faded in the last several years. And I'm curious why that is. And, you know, where, where do you think that's headed? I've been involved in this effort to create a, uh, uh, essentially a national AI research resource, okay? So this is uh, sort of vast amounts of computing, both for driving AI forward and for driving forward discovery that uses AI, which is everything. It's chemistry, it's physics, it's astronomy, it's economics, it's sociology. The thing I've been focusing on is the need for this to use the commercial cloud, that is Amazon, Microsoft, Google, IBM, and so on as opposed to building a private cloud with government funds. Okay, and that to me seems like the road to ruin. But the principal barrier to that is antipathy towards both AI and the tech industry by our representatives in Washington, D.C. Okay, So we have put ourselves into a pickle, I think, through our 
behavior as a tech industry and as users of AI with all of the biases that make their way into AI systems and uh, all of the uh, Tesla overreach in terms of uh, uh, autopilot, which certainly, again, what they've accomplished is quite remarkable, but what they have claimed is more than they have accomplished, it would appear. Uh, so there's a very serious problem now. And to me, it's it's unlike anything I remember. You know, there was a time decades ago when there was, I, I would say, antipathy towards Microsoft, but not other companies and not tech in general. Then there was a period of time in which there was antitrust antipathy towards everybody but Microsoft, towards Amazon and Apple and Google and now it just seems to be widespread. How do you think the industry could fix that or change the narrative? Or can they? Well, I think uh, whenever there's a caricature, there's at least a grain of truth behind it. So this is not, uh, it can't be viewed as a pure PR problem. It's a behavior problem. And I think the behavior needs to clean up. And that's, that's hard because... Uh, you know, if you think about, there's this whole Theranos question right now, right? Which is, uh, is this just what we're all doing? Okay. That is claiming how it's going to be some way down the road and uh, hoping against hope we're going to get there despite all evidence to the contrary. It's a tough situation for a reputation. Right. The fundamental question is, at what point does optimism become fraud? Yeah, right deceiving yourself? Are you willing the impossible into existence? Are you, what, what are you doing when you're speaking optimistically about your own prospects as a company or as an industry? And uh, it's, it's fascinating. I think the outcome of that Elizabeth Holmes trial, I've been following that super closely. I, I think it's going to be a bit of a litmus test now, granted it's one jury in one case, but it's, I think going to be a fascinating one to, to watch. Let's do predictions. I've not been following it that closely, but my gut says she gets off. She's not going to be sent to prison. So I think it's close. If I had to lay down money on it, I would bet that she's going to get convicted. Hmm. I, I disagree with that, but not vehemently with you. So I'm right on the knife's edge here, and I can't judge the impact of her playing these Sonny Balwani abused me card towards the end of the trial. Had, had they been tried together, I think there's no doubt they would have been convicted together. Okay, But I think she has clearly thrown him under the bus in an effort to get herself off. Of course, I have no idea whether there was abuse or not. They may well have been, but it, it complicates things in the eyes of the jury. And that causes me to tip towards uh, believing that she's not going to do jail time. For folks who have not been following this or want to catch up on it, there are two really good podcasts, both of which I've been following. One is called The Dropout by Rebecca Jarvis from ABC News, and the other is by the Wall Street Journal reporter John Carreyrou, Bad Blood, The Final Chapter, building on his book. Just lots of fascinating stuff to dig into there. But I agree, it gets into this larger question, Ed, as you're saying, of the ethics of the tech industry and, and where you draw the line. And let me say that there's a, a huge failure of the of the higher education system, of which, of course, I'm uh, partly responsible. And that is, I think we've focused for years on what we can create as opposed to what we should create. Okay, And I think um, computer science programs, including ours, are now rapidly beefing up the ethical considerations throughout our curriculum. But that's not something that has historically been there. All right. We haven't thought about uh, nearly nearly enough detail and taught about the implications of uh, what we're creating. And every technology has both uses and abuses. And, uh, you know, we've, we've focused on the benefits and not on mitigating the potential liabilities. I think for uh, centuries, civil engineers have known that if they take shortcuts and move too quickly, there's going to be a building collapse or a bridge failure and people are going to die. And so I think other fields of engineering are well ahead of computer science in educating students in a way that they're always thinking about the implications of moving too fast. So, uh, you know, move fast and break stuff has significant downsides. Along these lines, in our top stories, there were two really fascinating examples of technology, a big success and a big failure. So let's get into each of those 
after this break. You're listening to GeekWire, and we'll be right back. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. We are talking about the top stories of 2021 with our returning guest, Ed Lazowska of the University of Washington's Allen School for Computer Science and Engineering. Ed, there was an example this past year of technology coming out of the Allen School that actually solved a big problem or helped to address a, a big problem, and that is murder hornets. Can you tell us this story and the connection to one of the Allen School's students? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. The issue here was tracking the murder hornets. And the very first attempt at doing this, although subsequently different technology was used, involved work of a graduate student, Vikram Iyer, who's now a member of our faculty, actually. And he was a student of uh, faculty member Sham Galakota. Both of them are incredibly creative and brilliant. And what he had worked on was extremely lightweight radios, right? So the idea here was a, a radio lightweight enough that when you caught one of these murder hornets, you could glue this thing to its back and it could fly away with it. And then you would track the signal and, and track it down. In the uh, first attempt at this, they tracked the hornet using Vikram's radio and they were looking for a nest on the ground and it turned out it was in a tree. So they got to just the right place, but didn't find the nest. Subsequently, they switched to a different radio by uh, uh, a different uh, organization and found the nests. But it's really interesting. And you know, it goes back, I remember 20 years ago, we had a faculty member, Chris DiOrio, who left us now nearly 20 years ago to do the company Impinge, which is doing very well these days in RFID. But he worked with a top biologist and neuroscientist, Tom Daniel, to build what was then very lightweight radios that uh, Tom could strap to uh, the hawk moths that he used in his research. Now, hawk moths have, have like a three-inch wingspan or something like that. So if one of those gets loose in your wool closet, you're in deep trouble. But this notion of trying to build uh, very, very lightweight electronics that is at the interface between computer science and the natural world, I think is incredibly important. Tom these days has a drone into which he uh, literally couples the antennas from butterflies and moths, and these become scent tracking mechanical drones, unbelievably enough. You know, and as you know and have reported, uh, Louis Seze and his colleagues in our department are doing digital data storage and synthetic DNA and all sorts of things like that. So I think that interface is just really fascinating. I'm, I'm super interested in that area too, Ed, especially where it intersects with agriculture, which then also intersects with climate and how technology can be used to grow food at uh, you know a cheaper cost and easier to distribute. And one of our top stories this past year, and I think there are University of Washington roots here for sure. The headline was, AI-powered weed-destroying startup harvests $27 million round. Farmers say laser-blasting machine saves time and cuts pesticide use. So this, <laughs> this was a pretty cool startup. And we've seen the name of the company is Carbon Robotics, by the way. And it's uh, created by one of the co-founders of Isilon. And just a really cool company. And we've, we did a story on GeekWire this year talking about all the former software CEOs who are getting into this space of the intersection of agriculture and tech and AI and robotics. And I just think there's really cool stories there. They're going to make an impact. Yeah, there are other lessons in that one. So that's Paul Mikesell, who's an alum of ours. And he and Sujal Patel were young engineers at uh, Real Networks. And they saw that there was a need for uh, inexpensive, vast media storage. And that was Isilon. And Paul left fairly early on, moved down to the Bay Area, now is to do some startups, now is back here. And what's interesting is he decided he wanted to do something in agriculture. He spent a lot of time talking to farmers about what they needed. 
And uh, from his point of view, this is being this need for what he's doing is being driven, first of all, by labor costs and immigration restrictions. Okay, so there are fewer people to pull the weeds. Secondly, by the demand for organic farming, which means you're not going to use pesticides. So he had this notion from the beginning of the company. It's pretty interesting. And there are, of course, all sorts of uh, regulatory hurdles which he has surmounted because this is uh, no little laser that this thing carries around, but it works remarkably well. It's very, very cool. We have another alum, a PhD alum of ours who did a company in a different sector, but it was the same interview process. She has a company called Dusty Robotics, I believe, down in the Bay Area. Her name is Tessa Lau. And uh, what it does is mark plans on recently poured concrete in large-scale commercial construction sites. Okay. So normally someone would get out there and, you know, you have to transfer where the walls, the frames are going to be put up with concrete and things like that. So someone goes out there with uh, chalk snap lines and uh, marks the plans, but errors occur and it's uh, labor intensive. This, of course, is arbitrarily parallelizable because uh, you can deploy large numbers of relatively inexpensive robots that cruise around, locate themselves. But again, she, for example, interviewed the construction superintendent on our then under construction building, what became the Gates Center, and tried out eight different ideas on him. And this is the one that he thought would really be a win from his point of view. So this notion of talking to the customer and figuring out what the sweet spot is, is, uh, you know, what, what's the highest impact thing that you know how to build? It's an interesting way to go. It's the Amazon principle number one. Yeah. Listen to the yeah. customer. And it's, it's cool too, because Ed, tying into your, your comments about the computer science profession, maybe building what's right, you know, it ties directly into this. And I do think this is going to be a bigger trend and one we're paying attention to especially as younger computer science grads come out of the University of Washington and other other places with with this in mind and i really think the next generation of of engineers and computer scientists are going to be driven to try to solve our climate disaster i just think there is so much opportunity there for young entrepreneurs young scientists young engineers to really make headway and i and we're seeing it with some pretty cool startups already emerging. It's an area that at GeekWire, we're covering really closely as a, as a big trend going into next year and beyond. I'm going to blow our horn on this for a minute, if I may. And, and that is, I think UW was really a, a leader in this. A decade ago, Hank Levy and I started talking about uh, computer science advances tackling societal challenges. We had this sort of three-level picture, which with the traditional core of the field at the center and a set of uh, newer areas one ring outside of that. So that's machine learning and data science and uh, visualization, things like that, computer vision. And then outside of that was uh, healthcare and climate and aging at home and a set of things that people actually care about. And we talked about that for two reasons. One is that it was the right thing to do. And the second is that even if we could catch Berkeley in computer architecture, it probably wasn't the right play in 2010, the right thing to do was to redefine what success in computer science was and gain a first mover advantage. And we really tried to do that. Don't you get frustrated with that, though, when you see Zuckerberg come out and talk about the metaverse? I guess he would say that it is going to solve societal challenges and problems. I'm not buying it. And I, no. and I get really frustrated here that there's a lot of ink spilled around things like that and not enough about you know, somebody who's made some gigantic leap in biotech, you know, that's really going to solve a problem. And I don't know, I just, I feel like there's a lot of attention gets thrown at these big ad advertising based uh, platforms and engines and the other stuff just gets swept to the side. So well, uh, follow the money. That's, you know, yeah, they have a lot of money. They've got big market caps that they can do a lot with. So, yeah. Well, on the flip side, we saw technology not fail necessarily, but certainly not live up to its potential in the story of Zillow and its decision, shocking really, to back out of the direct buying and selling of homes. It's Zillow offers business. And one of the primary reasons for that was that they said they were unable to predict 
prices with the precision that they would have hoped and needed to make money on flipping those homes. And this really is a failure of the Zestimate, if if you look at it that way, which was really their core offering, or at least their core breakthrough that got them lots of attention. Ed, what does this say about machine learning? <laughs> well, let's remember that the Zestimate is an estimate of the value of your house now, all right? And, and there is a future prediction in it, but that's not why people go to the Zestimate. They want to know what someone thinks their house is worth. And the challenge with what they were trying to do was in a highly volatile market, they needed to predict what the value of something was going to be, not just now, but some number of months down the road after they had cleaned up the property and flipped it. And it's a different, harder problem. Uh, looking well into the future is, is more difficult. I will say it, you probably do what I do, which is occasionally you look at the uh, estimate of the value of your house in Zillow and Redfin. And uh, my home is consistently 15% off in those two apps. And I have no idea what to attribute that to. This story really was uh, a shocker. I mean, the whole story from beginning to end has been very interesting to me. I never understood why Zillow got into this business to begin with. It was it was such a 180 degree turn from how they had operated and what they had said for more than a decade of how they were going to operate. And I think they saw the competition coming from Open Door and Redfin and felt they had to put themselves in this market. And boy, I they just got clobbered. And but it it was such a, it was such an oddball turn for them to try to start buying and selling homes because they said they'd never do that. Yeah, Rich Barton's history in in three companies has been identifying an information asymmetry that disadvantages some party and addressing it. Right, and that's what he did with Expedia. You know, the travel agents held all the cards, and that's what he did with Glassdoor. The employers held all the cards, and that's what he did with Zillow. The real estate agents held all the cards. You know, so resolve that information asymmetry and figure out how to uh, build a company off it. And this was something very different. You're absolutely right, John. And I mean, I guess the other part of Rich Barton and Expedia is he had multiple brands and business units under the umbrella. And I think Zillow has grown that way. And so maybe that's how he saw this is like, oh, this is just going to be, iBuying is going to be one unit of the business. I think where they got in trouble, it was like, holy crap, this is costs a lot of money and we're putting all the other 18 businesses or whatever they have in jeopardy because we can't really control what's going on with our iBuying algorithms. And my sense just from reading <laughs> in GeekWire is that they were uh, buying faster than they were selling, which created some issues. But, but again, you know, Rich is an extraordinarily successful CEO and a good human being. And, uh, this is uh, very sad, but Zillow's going to get through this. Yeah, their market cap took a took a big hit because a lot of folks were were betting on the iBuying being successful. But Zillow is still a very successful business, and it's going to be interesting to see how they pivot and where they go next. But yeah, definitely not a company just because they're shutting their iBuying down. Would you count them out? I think they're still the leader in online real estate. They just this this damaged their reputation a bit, but I, I think 2022, it's going to be interesting to see where they pivot and where how they adapt and where they go next. John, as you say, that is going to be one of the big stories to watch in 2022, what happens with Zillow. There are three other stories that are top of mind for many of us, the Gateses, covid and tech funding and mergers and acquisitions in the stock market as the third group there. I want to talk about all three of those and look forward to what we can expect in the next year when we come back. You're listening to GeekWire. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. 
Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. Our guest this week is Ed Lazowska from the University of Washington Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering. So looking forward, there are a few things that were sort of part of this rebuilding year that we had over the past year. And one of them clearly, obviously, is COVID and the return to work. Andy Jassy, the new Amazon CEO, had some fascinating comments early in the year about the impact of remote work on innovation. Ed, do you have a feel just from your conversations with some of the big tech companies out there and smaller tech companies for where this whole trend is headed in terms of whether people are going to actually be back in the office in 2022? There was an interesting article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago talking about uh, New York City where only 8% of the uh, New York City workers are back full-time. The other people are either work from home or hybrid, sometimes in, sometimes out. The one thing everybody agreed upon was that hybrid team meetings are a disaster, meetings with some people physically together and some people remote. The other news in recent weeks is that people have just stopped predicting. I think we just don't know what the what the future is with Omicron and uh, successors. I I think uh, I think there's a lot of hybrid in our future, and I think the days in which everybody is all together all the time are past, and the days in which all your employees are local to the office with which they're associated are past. There are companies for which that's always been the case. I remember decades ago being in. Jeff Dean's office at Google and Mountain View. And, uh, uh, you know, he had a digital link to uh, actually another alum of ours who was in their New York office, and they were part of a four-person team working on something, just sort of how it's been. Imagine that this had happened five years ago, much less 10 years ago, and we didn't have, you know, the technology we have now for collaborating. It's not that it's perfect. We're missing a lot, but uh, we figured out how to get by. So I think, I think hybrid is the future. And you see a lot of companies just kind of throwing their hands up on this issue. I mean, Amazon basically said, hey, it's up to your individual manager now to figure it out. And so they're going to have 30 different policies based on which which team you work for. So that's an interesting trend. And I think, I mean, you saw it with Zillow earlier. Zillow basically said, hey, we're just going all virtual. People can be where they want and we're going to figure it out. And they never put a timeline on back to the office. I'm on the board of the Washington Tech Industry Association. We had an almost new headquarters remodel that we'd used for, I don't know, a year or something like that. We sold it. Okay. There's no physical presence for WTIA anymore. Yeah, I think we're going to see more of that for sure. And as it relates to real estate moves and interesting trends we're watching, another big one, which we've been writing a lot about in a series we call Rise of Bellevue, is the migration, when people do go back to the office, they might not be going to downtown Seattle, which has been the hub and the epicenter of the tech community in Seattle. They're migrating to Bellevue, which is growing super fast and attracting Amazon. Amazon's going to have close to 25,000 employees just in Bellevue in the coming years. And so this is a huge trend that we're watching. It's just when people go back, where where is the epicenter? Um, and it seems like it's shifting back to the east side. When Microsoft was coming up and growing up and becoming the behemoth that they are, Redmond and the east side controlled the world <laughs> in many ways, and downtown Seattle wasn't the place to be. Well, when Amazon started coming up and centered their headquarters right in the heart of downtown Seattle, the epicenter shifted to downtown Seattle. So it seems like we're seeing now a shift back to Bellevue. So they're two sides to that coin. I think, you know, there was a limit to how large Amazon was going to get in Seattle, you know, and there, you know, and there's a limit to how large we want them to be in Seattle because they can't be a one town company and we can't be a one company town. We tried that in the sixties and seventies and how'd that go? Okay. So I think our diversification is important. I think tech workers and younger workers and creatives like an urban environment by and large. And Bellevue is an urban environment now. It wasn't 20 years ago. It is the case that some of the attractiveness of Bellevue is at Seattle's expense in the sense that we don't have a, uh, an effective regional homelessness policy. And homelessness is a regional challenge. It needs to be dealt with regionally. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, we need to find affordable housing for people who live and work in our region. And 
Bellevue rousts the homeless. And where are they going to go? Okay, they pop up in Seattle. Okay, so it's important to realize that I think last I knew, a significant majority of the homeless were people who were housed in our region before they became homeless. They're not people moving here to be homeless. We need a regional policy that figures out how to get these people the services they need, the housing, the social services, the mental health services. We have to couple the criminal justice system to these other services, as opposed to the complete disconnect among services that we have today and the complete disconnect among our various urban centers. So I think this is just an enormous challenge to making our region livable for all people. I got a chance to talk with Greg Nichols, who was Seattle's mayor when the South Lake Union project was coming on board. And the thing that just really struck me was the contrast between the Amazon that he knew as mayor back then and the Amazon that Bellevue's current mayor and city manager are dealing with. It is just talk about 180 degrees difference. I mean, Amazon has completely transformed the way it interacts with cities and is much more of a partner now. I would say it wasn't in the days of Greg Nichols an enemy, but it was just an indifferent occupant of the city in many ways. And I think that is one place where there's potential optimism in talking with some of the Amazon folks. I think that they're hoping perhaps that the next generation of Seattle city leaders sees what Amazon has done in Bellevue and Arlington and uses perhaps Andy Jassy's new tenure as an opportunity for a fresh start. That is extremely optimistic, given the current state of affairs between Seattle and the company, but it is a little bit of a, a glimmer of hope. I think Bellevue is a whole lot easier to partner with than Seattle has been, certainly in recent years, not scrolling backwards, okay? But Seattle has been, you know, the city council has been completely dysfunctional. Unfortunately, we learned last week that our dysfunctionality is likely to continue for the foreseeable future. So I think that's a really significant issue. It's also the case that while South Lake Union isn't what we envisioned back when we were talking about the Seattle Commons in the middle 1990s, we voted against that twice. And, you know, South Lake Union does not have all the affordable housing we wanted and all the parkland we wanted and on and on, but it is a whole lot better than what was there 30 years ago. Remember that uh, when this renovation of South Lake Union began because Paul Allen loaned $20 million to the Seattle Commons effort so that they could start buying up parking lots and vacant warehouses before the prices were jacked up. And he agreed to forgive the loan when the citizens approved the Seattle Commons. And we voted it down the second time. He kind of said, well, I'll do the best I can by myself. Again, you know, I remember when the uh, light rail to South Lake Union from Westlake was referred to as the Westlake to Hooters Express because there was nothing anywhere between Westlake and South Lake Union. And there was nothing at South Lake Union except for a Hooters. So again, Seattle suffers from some self-inflicted wounds. I think my view is we need as a city to look in the mirror as opposed to point the finger at Californians or Amazon or whoever, okay? Look in the mirror and think about these self-inflicted wounds that we could have done something about in the past with more foresight and that we should avoid in the future. The other big issue that I think will be fascinating to watch in 2022 is the future of the Gates Foundation. And that is just one slice of a much larger story that included the divorce of Bill Gates and now Melinda French Gates and the question of where the foundation is headed, but also where Bill Gates is headed as an individual philanthropist and Melinda Gates is headed in her own work. You've also got thrown into this a somewhat similar situation uh, with Jeff Bezos and Mackenzie Scott, uh, his ex-wife, and some of the philanthropy that, that she's doing, that Mackenzie Scott is doing in a very unique way. Well, I, I think... Uh... Mackenzie Scott's philanthropy is a very big story. Her approach is amazing. She clearly has a small team of advisors. She's moving very quietly. I had a meeting a couple of weeks ago with Ruth Simmons, who uh, was years ago the president of Brown University, where I've been an undergraduate before her time, but now is the uh, president of Prairie View, where 
um, Mackenzie made a significant investment. And Prairie View does not have the Rolodex that Brown does, much less Harvard or Princeton or Yale or Stanford. And that's just a transformative gift for Ruth as the president of Prairie View with what she's going to be able to do in a historically black college and university with uh, Mackenzie's support. So I just think it's absolutely remarkable. This uh, investments in the underserved that she's making are uh, extraordinary and trusting those organizations to know what to do with the funds. Ed, what was your reaction when you saw that Bill and Melinda Gates were getting divorced? Astonishment. <laughs> Astonishment. That one totally was a surprise. And I know, Todd, you've talked about this in terms of kind of a disappointment. <sighs> yeah, I I have to say I can't discuss this topic without feeling epically naive because, <laughs> I mean, I was covering Microsoft and Bill Gates during some of these timeframes when these allegations have since come out, claims about Bill Gates and his relationships with Microsoft employees I've gone back and talked with other reporters who were covering Gates at that time and still cover him and of, of many genders and backgrounds to make sure I didn't like just completely <laughs> miss this in part because of, you know, my own biases. And I've had a hard time finding anybody who had any concrete information about this stuff that was going on back then. But, but more than that, I, I think it's just a real question of, of what's going to come of the Gates Foundation. I mean, they've agreed to run it jointly for a specified time period, I think a couple years. And after that point, they're going to decide whether it works for them. And, and if it does not work for them to run it jointly, I think the implications of that would be vast for Seattle and global philanthropy. Um, just tons, tons of uh, stuff happening here that's, that's going to be meaningful in terms of its impact either way. Before we wrap here, I do want to bring up, Ed, you were in the news just recently for something that you actually had nothing to do with, but that you were the subject of, and, and that was a gift to the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering by a group of technology luminaries, Peter Lee and Brad Smith and Harry Shum of Microsoft and Jeff Dean of Google who donated together $1 million to establish an endowed professorship in your name. And I bring it up now because we're running out of time for others to contribute to that campaign. Uh, so uh, we will link to that. Uh, this will be all in the spirit of continuing the, the innovation and the education that we've seen at the UW Allen School through these as they're calling them, Lazowska professorships at the UW, Ed, uh, out of humility, uh, pointing out this this is not something you did. Obviously, it was an honor in many ways, but can you give us your take on the, all of this? Well, it was just overwhelming. It uh, It's so meaningful to me. I was in tears when the four of them told me about it. You know, Peter scheduled a, a Zoom with me on what happened to be my 70th birthday. And I assumed it was a technical discussion because Peter and I talk all the time. And instead, it was Peter and Jeff and Harry and Brad telling me what they had done, which was to create this fund, which hopefully would grow to be able to award multiple professorships and to seed it with their wives with a uh, million dollars to award the first one, which has gone to Luis Cese, who's really just exemplifies the future of computer science and the future of the program at the University of Washington. So I was in tears. Uh, it, it means so much to me, and it means so much to the future of the program at the University of Washington. And I spent my entire professional life there and hopefully have moved it in a positive direction and brought it closer to the tech community. I think, you know, when I arrived here, which was, gosh, in 1977, that's uh, probably before you guys were born. Um, no, I was born. I was, I was, okay. I was four years old. You know, there, there, were, there, there, we go. there were 13 faculty members at the University of Washington. I was the 13th and Microsoft was 13 people in Albuquerque. And technology wow. here was, you know, bowling, building planes and fluke building voltmeters and physio control building defibrillators. You know, we at UW have been fortunate to grow up along with the tech industry here. And it's been just this extraordinarily symbiotic relationship Thanks, Ed, for everything you do. And just in our last minute here, how would you compare Seattle today if you were to 
run down that roster of things that are here today versus those physio control Boeing, you know, Microsoft and Albuquerque days? You know, we have lots of stresses and strains here as a result of our success, but we have been successful. And the challenge is to continue that success while making this a place that welcomes everybody and where everybody can afford to live and live healthy and happy lives and get a good education. And to honestly, you know, there's this phrase, keep Austin weird, all right? And we have to keep Seattle weird. That is the things that attracted people to Seattle, all right? that uh, enabled us, that what, what caused Jeff Bezos to move here, right? And what caused uh, Rich Barton to come back from Stanford and build his companies here? What are the characteristics about the Seattle then? Because, you know, we don't want to be the city of big old companies. We want to be the constant city of vibrant creativity and region of vibrant creativity. So I really, you know, we have to be a region. And that region has to be one that continues to have these creative juices flowing and uh, kids who grow up and are prepared and aspire to continue their lives here and continue to innovate. And we need the weird music and the weird art and the innovative retail and the tech and all of the things that have made Seattle a special place to be. Hats off to you on the professorships. You've been a absolute concrete pillar of the community and the success of of the region so i think it's much deserved well thank you john and todd ed lazowska is a computer science professor at the allen school of computer science and engineering ed thanks for joining us again for this tradition it's an honor and a pleasure great to talk to you guys our show is produced and edited by Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and subscribe to our daily email newsletter to see all of our headlines. We will be back next week with our year-end news quiz. You can test yourself on all of these headlines and the stories you've been following. Happy New Year. Happy Holidays. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. We'll talk to you next time on GeekWire.